Hello, this is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. First, I just want to briefly share with those that are not familiar with any of the messages that I am giving as to how I will be sharing this message. The Word of God says, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. In other words, we are to seek to minister to one another those words that are coming not out of ourselves, but are coming from God through us. We are to seek to speak as, as if God is speaking through us to one another, his very word. This means that we are in a state of conscious abiding relationship with God and continually aware out of that relationship of fellowship with God of what God is speaking and wanting to say to those that we are speaking to. This is what is called the spirit of prophecy as it says in Revelations chapter 19 says concerning the apostle John who fell prostrate at the feet of the angel the angel said to him see thou do it not and he commanded him worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy when we worship God out of a pure heart and spirit and in truth we are filled with the spirit of God and there is the download of his word that begins to happen as we are expressing our affection towards God. And so out of that comes prophecy. This doesn't mean foretelling the future as much as it means speaking whatever God is saying. Because it's a two-way communion that begins to happen. Elijah the prophet called for the minstrel to dance and play, and was caught up in the spirit of worship and then prophesied. He found that it was important to put himself into a place of worship. Before he began to speak what the Spirit of God would be saying, and so I will seek, even though um, privately here by myself I don't have anyone playing instruments and I haven't spent any time uh, singing and worshiping God before this message, I will seek to speak and to be also in a state of worshiping the Lord while I am speaking to you. And my prayer is that you will receive those words that are coming by the Holy Spirit to minister to you as an individual. And also the corporate body of Christ around the world would have ears to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to them. It's been some time since I last shared the Word of God. This is not because I did not want to share it. It is because there has been a lot of things I have been doing in the internet business recently that have taken up a lot more time and I have been very close to making money. I'm not there yet and the financial situation is more tight. And so I've found also there's been also the need to help other people in my life, including my mom that's 93. But 
I will be doing a lot more of the ministry of the Word of God as time goes on. And I am released from those things that are holding me back with my time at this time. I want to begin to share with you that I will be also not only seeking to share out of the spirit of prophecy or out of prophesying by the Holy Spirit, but I will also be sharing with you passages that I receive by the casting of the lot for the most part. Sometimes I sense the Lord wanting me to just sense where he's leading me. But I find that most of the time I don't get a message that way. And I find that very consistently God speaks to me by the casting of lots where there's an equal possibility of any particular chapter of the Bible to come forth. And so I haven't shared I, since the beginning of this year, and today is January the 18th already, I believe the theme passage I will be sharing from is Numbers chapter 9. But I want to touch on some of the passages that have come forth that I make notes on through the, after I cast lots. I meditate for about a half an hour, including writing of notes every day. And then I do another hour in a book I'm writing, which is basically meditating on the Word of God, too, because what I am writing is on the fear of God and on God's ultimate purpose for these last days and bringing forth the Bride of Christ. I'm not going to get carried away in the two books I've been writing and one that's more recent and will come out first, um, which is on the Bride of Christ. I want to begin just touching on some of the passages before I focus in on Probably Numbers 9 as the theme passage, and we read that chapter. Um, on January the 2nd, I received, according to my notes here, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I only made a very brief comment on that chapter. I said it should be our delight to sacrificially help other believers when it is in our power to do so. This must be out of a pure heart with no desire to, be, to have recompense or glory. I go on, January the 3rd, 2 Corinthians 7. Now, of course, after all that time, I don't remember what the chapter was about, but I'm going to read the commentary. If we really perceive the greatness of the promises to those who live in holiness, then there should be no hesitation to perfect holiness in the fear of God by cleansing ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And of course, I'm very familiar with that verse that says that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And I go on. It should be in our hearts as it were to die and live with those we are seeking to bring forth into the blessings of oneness with God. This means that we will speak the truth to them even when it may hurt them and cause them to reject us. This will release God to bring true repentance into their lives and sorrow that bursts them into a life of holiness. We should make it clear the reason we're speaking the truth that hurts to those we love. 
is because we want them to know how genuinely and deeply we love them. Then, pardon me, there is a deep relationship of much joy that is also mingled with tears and with deep emotions of love and such holy relationships. This particular passage, 2 Corinthians 7, is emphasizing the importance of us entering into holiness, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, that we might be cleansed of all the filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And truly, when there is a genuine fear of God in our hearts, not a counterfeit fear of God, we will recognize out of the fear of God the greatness of His mercy towards us. And it is out of recognizing the greatness of His mercy towards us and His grace and goodness that we are filled with thankfulness out of great humility and honesty and great respect towards God because we really realize what we've been saved from. And then we will find a strong identity in God that will allow us to have a right relationship with one another where our identity is not stronger in one another than in our relationship with God. But rather the Lord is the center of our life not our little group that has become our religious group and in many cases becomes an idol in people's lives because they're more concerned about their group and their friends that is around certain beliefs than it is around a real and vital and living relationship with God. And so when there is such a relationship with God, the Word of God commands us to have salt in ourselves and to love one another. It commands us to speak the truth in love. Genuine love is always out of, first, a total, genuine, deep integrity of relationship with God and identity with God that is not compromised in its relationship with others, but allows that love relationship we have with God to be outpoured in even laying down our life for those that we love. And part of laying down our lives for those that we love is being willing to speak the truth to them at the cost of them misunderstanding us and rejecting us. This brings a genuine unity, a genuine bond of fellowship. Because we always have the opportunity, later after that misunderstanding, to enter into a far greater and deeper fellowship with them that comes out of a pure relationship with God.
The Word of God says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The evidence that we have a genuine relationship with people is one that we experience not a surface relationship that is a mere facade. It may involve laughing. It may involve a lot of emotion. But a genuine relationship is far deeper. And that relationship comes because we've been willing to lay down our lives out of the love that God has put in our heart that comes from God towards one another. So as we are willing to be in the truth with one another, we are not those that are easily offended by one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. And a genuine relationship walking before God allows us to have genuine fellowship. And we can sense when a fellowship is merely on the surface and not genuine and not from a deep heart reciprocation. We can sense that. We know that when between those that call themselves our brothers and sisters, we do not sense the flow of peace in our inner man, nor the flow of the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit when we are sharing with them. We know that that person has probably got a spirit of judgment in them. And their heart is hard, and they are not receiving us as Christ commanded us to receive one another. He commanded us to receive one another as he has received us as sinners. You know the verse. Receive ye one another, even as Christ Jesus received us. And he received us as those that were still in sin. But we're coming to him in true heart of repentance and forgiveness because he spoke the truth to us that birthed that genuine repentance. And in this passage of scripture here, there is an emphasis on repentance. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And so maybe I will turn to that particular passage. I wasn't planning to, but I just want to read those particular verses. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So there we go. We're going to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 about this repentance. Beginning in verse 8, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. For ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, 
but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Paul the Apostle did not take any pleasure, nor do we, in speaking the, tr the truth to a brother or a sister that has deceived themselves to be in captivity to the things of this world that is leading them in a path of destruction. They need someone to come to them and out of a spirit of grace and humility and meekness that gives evidence of genuine love, speak the truth to them and warn them. We are our brother's keeper. And one of the evidences that we truly love one another is our willingness to speak the truth to one another, that we might be sanctified in our relationships between each other and be enlarged in an ongoing, ever-growing bond of unity and peace of the Spirit of God and in the love of God. We only have to think of what Job went through. We know what happened to Job. He was misjudged. He was misunderstood in his trial by his friends. And through it all, Job did not violate his integrity before God. And he endured the misunderstanding. And I'm not going to get into the details of how God allowed this trial in his life to purify him. What I want to share is that the Word of God says concerning Job, the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And brothers and sisters, we may experience the hurt of a rejection from those we love the most, which often can be our brothers and sisters that confess to be following Christ, but may not be fully walking in the light, that may not be walking in the light at all. But how we win them is by recognizing the greatness of God's love to us, because we see the greatness of His mercy to us. And that comes out of first seeing the greatness of his holiness. It requires judgment. And what is the holiness of God? It is the integrity of the ultimate perfection of love, who is God. A love that has such purity of integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is contrary to it and will not tolerate any corruption. Corruption is the lack of love, because love always chooses the highest lasting good. And as a blazing fire of judgment requires judgment in all that is contrary to choosing the highest lasting good over any more immediate choice of self-satisfaction. God wants us to recognize the holiness of God that requires judgment and how we do not deserve his mercy but can come like the woman did to his feet with tears of thankfulness. Remember the word of God says that if we lack the things that lead on to eternal life 
and unto godliness, then we are blind and cannot see afar off and have been forgotten that we've been purged of our old sins. It is in the light of God's holiness that we recognize, that is the integrity of his love that requires judgment, that we recognize the greatness of the beauty of his holiness. For without holiness, there is corruption. And when there's corruption, there isn't wholeness. But when there's holiness, the holiness of God, they will not tolerate any corruption. There is wholeness. And when there is wholeness, there is beauty. And if we are to know a wholeness in our inner being, and also that leads to physical health and wholeness, because our soul is prospering, then our body can prosper as well. It comes by recognizing, choosing to rightly recognize who God is first in his holiness, which is the defensive aspect of his love that requires judgment, that is the integrity of his love. When we recognize and we choose to recognize God that way, we are recognizing the beauty of God and that he is just in all that he is allowed in this world and all that he is allowing in our lives. We no longer accuse God of all the suffering that's in the world and all the suffering that our own life is going through and all the consequences and reverberations from the fall for those things took place because of being cut off from the holiness of God because of our own choices in rebellion against God. God created us with our own free will so that we would have the capacity to love and as such, we are the source of our own action and therefore self-responsible. So we cannot blame God for our own choices. We cannot blame God for creating the devil, for God did not create the devil. This was a being that was the source of its own action, which had its own, as us, free will. And so we are guilty. In the light of his holiness, when we rebel, against the consequences of suffering that are because of our own choices. But God's love is so great that he suffered more than you, a mere creature, and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. Think of that. Hard to grasp and fathom of God, of such ultimate beauty, in holiness, the beauty that comes, the wholeness that comes out of holiness that radiates forth beauty and allows creativity to ever expand forever in greater realms of fulfillment that ever enlarge forever without end because God is holy. And it is because God is holy that there springs from his holiness the ultimate manifestation of love in that he, without violating the integrity of his holiness, would take such judgment upon himself for you so that you could be reconciled to God, so that you could have destiny, and so that he could create a creation with destiny and purpose that could inherit ultimate meaning and fulfillment 
with God that will ever enlarge in greater and greater creative realms of fulfillment that never ends. How wonderful it is when we recognize the greatnesses, as I said in this, these notes here, when we perceive the greatness of the promises to those who live in holiness, then there should be no hesitation to perfect holiness in the fear of God by cleansing ourselves of all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. And I want to read those few verses at the beginning. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. And I won't go on with this passage. I want to go on to other passages. That was on January the 3rd. The next day, on Wednesday, January the 4th, I received Isaiah 63. And there are some significant verses that stand out on, in Isaiah 63. It says in verse 17, O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servants' sake the tribes of thine inheritance. Now if I go on and read those verses, that particular verse stands out. But if I read the verses before and after, this is what it says. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength, the sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me? Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us. And Israel acknowledges not, Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. And then we have the verse I just read about why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear. Return for thy servant's sake the tribes of thine inheritance. What causes us to err in our ways before God that can lead to outright rebellion against God is the choice to allow our hearts to be hardened against the fear of God. Relationships with one another can, over time, if we allow hardness of heart to collect in our lives, be broken, resulting in division, resulting in such a hardness that couples end up having such unforgiveness towards one another that they end up divorcing one another. This hardness is an adultery from God because of a love for the things of this life and of this world. The Word of God says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world passes away in the lust thereof. 
but he that doeth the will of God abides forever. For all that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And it is becoming involved in our world, even just trying to survive and make ends meet, that can cause us to get into a dither of busyness and of focus on the concerns of this life so that we let go of our relationship with God and lose out in seeking God in a life of prayer. The result is the collection of hardness around our heart because we are not focusing on who God is through prayer. You see, the fear of God is more than just a mindset or even a heart set. It is a heart set, but it's not just choosing to have a slight turning in our heart towards recognizing God. It involves seeking God. In fact, there's a verse in the scripture, I don't know where it is right at the time, that says that those that fear the Lord seek the Lord. Basically, it's making that equation. And that is true. If we allow the things of this world to be more important so that our time and our energy isn't consumed in these things, we have lost out. You see, the fear of God is a choice of heart. It's far more than a mindset. It's a heart set that results in a right mindset as well, which renews our mind so that we do not have the fallen mind, but the renewed mind. But it comes from the heart. It is the heart that chooses to recognize God first in those two ultimate aspects of his love. The integrity of his love that requires judgment, which is his holiness. And the mercy of God's love that springs out of his holiness by being able to express what is ultimately creative in life, which is this love that is so great that God himself, without violating the integrity of his love, made a way for us. Though we have sinned and deserve the judgment of his holiness to be reconciled to him. And really the theme passage that I'm hoping will be the theme passage as I'm preaching here Numbers 9 goes in to that in particular because it is about the sacrificial lamb where the blood was put on the door lintels. The way we deliver ourselves from hardness of heart is by getting on our face before God and being still and knowing and entering into a knowing that he is God that comes by pulling back the reins of our own heart that are impetuous, that are presumptuous, that are self-initiating in independence from God. How often we come presumptuously before God, but the Word of God says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1, it says, when you come before God, be not hasty to utter anything before God. 
For God is in heaven and you upon earth. Therefore, let your words be few. In other words, beware of whose awesome presence you're in. You don't just speak something presumptuously when you're coming before the majesty of a great king, especially the creator of the universe. You're in utter awe. You're on your face in awe of whose presence you're in. That's the way Abraham was. He said when the Lord appeared to him in those three persons, I am but dust and ashes before you. He was in awe of God always that way, as he was on his face before God in utter awe of who he was. Learning to curb back our tendencies to speak presumptuously before God. Learning to wait on God, which is learning to cease from those things, pull back the reins of our own tendencies of presumptuous self-initiation. The word Sabbath means cessation, cessation of our self-initiation, of our wanting to go ahead and do things. How many times I'm that way. I find it hard to go to bed early enough because I'm trying so hard on the internet to make money in order to be freed up to do what I really want to do for God. How many times I end up staying up late because I want to complete something when I shouldn't. I should be willing to let go of it. And so I suffer the consequences of staying up late and it gets into that cycle. And then I finally say, Lord, I, you know, this isn't a first love relationship. When I, I, this isn't trusting you. If I'm trusting you, I don't look at it depending on me for you to provide my needs and me completing whatever it is, in this case on the internet, I learn to rest in who God is. I think of Hudson Taylor when hundreds of missionaries were being martyred in the Boxer Rebellion in China and their blood was being spilled. And he comes out with a song and it goes like this. Jesus, Jesus, I am resting in the joy of who you are. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. In this passage in Isaiah 63, there's an emphasis on Abraham and on God being our father in verse 16. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, thou, O Lord, or thou, O Yahweh, art our father, our redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. In other words, it's, people need to understand the word name. The word name in the Hebrew is very similar to the word soul. If you look this up, you'll find this is the case if you look it up in the Hebrew Old Testament Vines. The word soul has the understanding of who you are, really are, in regards to yourself. The word name is who you really are 
in expression to others. And God's name is his very being of who he really is in his love, which entails his holiness, which you can, for illustration in nature, illustrate it as the negative symbol in electricity, and which is his mercy illustrated in the symbol of the cross or the plus symbol in electricity. What breaks the, the hard shell of electrons that spin around the nucleus of the atom, forming a hard shell as those electrons spin so fast, is the negative first, which is the holiness of God, choosing to recognize the holiness of God and being all of that, and out of that recognizing the greatness of God's mercy to us. That breaks the hardness. And that involves waiting on God and seeking God so that that deposit of who God is becomes a reality in our inner heart and soul and spirit. The result is the hardness is broken and that shell that was around the nucleus of the atom is broken and there's the flow of power, resurrection, power and life. And what I'm sharing here with you, brothers and sisters, is that you need to return to recognize God as your Father. And you will never recognize Him as your Father if you don't recognize Him as the One who is filled with severity and holiness, but also out of that overflows far more in love and in mercy. He's slow to anger and great in mercy and love, and rightly so, for he is the ultimate perfection of love. And we begin to see him. What does the word Father mean? The one that is our creator, the one that is our potter, molding us and making us in the things that he has foreknown would happen on our lives through the circumstances there are opportunities for us to be molded and made into his image. Recognizing God as our Father means to recognize that he will chastise us, as it clearly points out in Hebrews. In fact, it involves the choice to say to God, because I see who you are in your holiness and how beautiful that holiness is and wholeness and in beauty that allows for the things that have you, you've created that are so filled with beauty. You are the very source of beauty because you are the very source of wholeness and that's because you are the very source of holiness. And so in recognizing that, and in the light of that, how far we fall short, we cry out for the mercy of God. We rejoice in his forgiveness with tears streaming down the face of our heart that melts the hardness and brings us in to a deep reciprocative relationship with God that releases us to conquer the hardness in others and bring them into reconciliation with God. It happens when we recognize the error of our ways. Yes, the question is, 
Why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and harden our heart from thy fear? It's because of our choices to not fear God. That is why. That is what causes us to enter into error. And so the prophet is, by the Spirit of God, speaking of how it doesn't matter if we are rejected by those around us. For he says, though Israel acknowledges not, it doesn't matter to him anymore. He's found his identity fully in God as his Father, as his Redeemer. His name is from everlasting. He sees that the being of God can go on forever without end because there's no corruption in his being because of this integrity of love. And it goes on forever not only because of that, but because out of that there springs forth the ultimate in creativity, which is the mercy of God in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, on the cross. And so the time will come when the Lord will turn his people back. And so as I go on here and I share, I want to continue with the things that the Lord has led me to. On January the 5th, I received number 16. And I make this comment here. The sin of pride brings presumption that leads to rebellion against the Lord. People begin to assume higher position of godly leadership and are not thankful for the position and lot that God has given them. They even come to believe their cause is just when in fact they are in complete rebellion against the Lord. And this is the account of the rebellion of Korah against Moses and Aaron. And I think most of us as believers are familiar with that account. Number 16, 3, And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, even one of them, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore then lift ye up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, when there are prophets that come in our midst to reprove us, may we never have this attitude of rebellion. May we be open to the reproofs of the Lord, to his correction in our lives as individuals and corporately in the body of Christ when there are those that are led by the Spirit of God and the ministry of the prophetic to reprove his people. I've been talking about how important it is to reprove his people. God's anger burns against such rebellion and such people if they do not repent. They are completely on their way to hell forever. And we know the account. I'm not going to read it for time. It's in Numbers 16, 29 to 33. Even those that have affinity or relationship with them then may also come under the wrath of God with serious judgments if there is not atoning intercession for those that are in rebellion against God. And this is not just the case in the Old Testament. We only have to see what Paul the Apostle said to the Corinthian church. When there was the, uh, someone that was committing incest, he said, What are you doing praising God? You should be mourning that this person received judgment and is taken away from you. You should be mourning that 
somehow he comes to repentance and this doesn't happen. And he talks about purging out the leaven. And we must be bold and we must be valiant to speak the truth to one another and not to condone those things that might please people like, and especially our children, are the hardest to put on the altar. That was the challenge with Abraham. Would he put his son on the altar? And often what brings apostasy by the second and third generation after a revival, powerful revival, is that the blessings of the children that have been given by God have not been put on the altar. And so there's compromise to allow them to bring the things of the world that would take us away from a tender, anointed relationship of fellowship with God. God is calling a standard to be raised against these things in these last days. That we will not allow these cycles to happen anymore, but come forth to be the bride of Christ. On January the 7th, I received Isaiah 56. And I made these brief comments. Those that commit themselves to not do their own works, but rather cease from them to keep their days as first seeking the Lord, can be tempted to view themselves as having a dull, dry life. We are commanded not to do this, but to recognize God's pleasure in them and his promise to give them what is better than sons and daughters, which is an everlasting name that is of their being, their being being everlastingly precious and very a very close place in God's dwelling forever. There's nothing more wonderful than being in God's dwelling forever, close to the very presence of God. Believe me, when the four beasts keep on saying, holy, 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 they're not bored. The glory and the presence of God and all his creativity is flowing through them, causing whole galaxies to be continually created in various parts of the universe. Powerful expressions of creativity are going forth continually from the throne of God in a light that is unapproachable in brightness that comes out of this love, which is the negative and positive, the integrity of God's holiness, of love, and God's grace that springs therefrom. Then I received January 9th, Psalms 147. <laughs> How in the world am I going to get to January the 17th? At this rate, I'm just going to briefly comment on this. This was a passage on praise. The word praise comes from a word halal, which in the symbolic Hebrew letters is the picture of a man with his hand raised, which stands for awe and that which is beautiful. And then the next two are a shepherd's staff, which is the symbol in the early language, like the cane, you know, the cane that they have during Christmas, the hook. It is to hook us in towards God, and so we are hooked in. We choose to be hooked in or yoked towards God in who he is and his beauty, and this word means to shine. We make God shine by describing who he is out of a pure heart. We praise him in the beauty of holiness. 
extolling God for who he is. Now, I just, I'm not going to leave it at that. Praise means to look towards something with expression that causes it to shine with glory that is very clear and strong for others to see. Therefore, singing praises to God means to sing with words that point toward how great and glorious the Lord is. In praise, we sing and declare the everlasting, infinite goodness and power of Elohim, the Almighty's One, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The next day, or the next time, I got Psalms 145. Again, a psalm of praise, and again, I didn't share much on this. Except that it says there, the Lord is near to all that call upon him in truth. And I looked up the word extol, because King David starts it with the word extol. This word has the symbol of a head first, which means first and priority. The symbol of a tent bag, which means attaching strongly to something with priority. And then the symbol of water, which means life. So when we extol God, we are recognizing that he is our life source and prioritizing that recognition recognition, and pegging our life to it, recognizing that in God is life, just like we cannot live without water. Water is beautiful. It reflects the glory of the sun. It is filled with life. May we also look to him and have our faces lightened, that our faces may be lightened and not ashamed, but reflect the glory of God out of that relationship that comes out of the fear of God. It's the recognition of his majesty. The word majesty is in this psalm. And the word majesty is the symbol of a man standing with beauty again, but the word majesty has the next symbol as a tent door. And it has the understanding of entering in. But this particular word is not just those two symbols. That's the root word. The actual full word for majesty is the symbol of a man representing awe and beauty and then pegging it to the entrance of the door. In other words, we are recognizing the beauty of God and we are focusing on that recognition and entering into who he is and his beauty. That's the understanding of the word majesty when we praise God in the original Hebrew. And now I come to the theme passage, Numbers 9. And so I believe it would be right to read, if not all, but certain parts of Numbers 9. And so I will turn now to Numbers 9. Numbers 9. And we read, And the Lord spake unto Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the first month of the second year after they were come out of the land of Egypt, saying, Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at his appointed season. In the fourteenth day of this month at even, ye shall keep it in his appointed season, according to all the rites of it, and according to all the ceremonies thereof, shall ye keep it. And Moses spake unto the children of Israel that they should keep the Passover, and they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the first month at even, in the wilderness of Sinai, according to that the Lord commanded Moses, so did the children of Israel. And there were certain men who were defiled by the dead body of a man, 
that they could not keep the Passover on that day. And they came before Moses and before Aaron on that day. And those men said unto him, We are defiled by the dead body of a man. Wherefore are we kept back, that we may not offer an offering of the Lord in his appointed season among the children of Israel? And Moses said unto them, Stand still, and I will hear what the Lord will command concerning you. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. The fourteenth day of the second month at even, they shall keep it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. <clears throat> Going on here, just catching my place as I scroll up here on my computer. And it says this, If any man of you, of your posterity, shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, so, and the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If any man of you or of your posterity shall be unclean by reason of a dead body, or be in a journey afar off, yet he shall keep the Passover unto the Lord. The fourteenth day of the second month at even they shall keep it, and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall leave none of it unto the morning, nor break any bone of it, According to all the ordinances of the Passover, they shall keep it. But the man that is clean and is not in a journey, and forbeareth to keep the Passover, even the same soul shall be cut off from among his people, because he brought not the offering of the Lord in his appointed season, that man shall bear his sin. And if a stranger shall sojourn among you, and will keep the Passover unto the Lord according to the ordinance of the Passover, and according to the manner thereof, so shall he do. And ye shall have one ordinance, both for the stranger and for him that was born in the land. I don't know if it's necessary for me to read more. I think I'll leave it at that point. And I'm just going to read the notes I made on this first. The consistent practice of keeping the Passover on the 14th day of the first month was a serious commandment that if not obeyed resulted in being cut off from the corporate body of Elohim, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is because it represents God's mercy and forgiveness offered to them to receive and partake of. To disobey this was to reject the very being of who God is in his mercy and grace that issues out of his love that is so absolute in purity out of the integrity of his love and required judgment. Such reciprocation of his love and mercy through atoning sacrifice can be nothing less than wholehearted, which is represented in the need to eat the sacrifice completely. The bones were not to be broken, which indicates and represents that the atoning sacrifice is perfect in the walk of righteousness that did not stumble out of the path and break a bone. There must be the perception in us that God alone could only be that sacrifice, because he only could be perfect and totally pure to be a sacrifice that requires perfection to be substitutionary, to cleanse fully the soul and the spirit and the body of 
a human being of man, of us from Adam. Our eating is the reciprocation with humility and thankfulness of the perfect and ultimate being of God's love in his holiness and in his mercy to us in atoning sacrifice. God came into this world in Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, there was such a great condescension that God, as it says in Philippians 2, did not, Jesus, who was equal with God, did not consider equality with God just because he's God, did not consider because he's God that he had to grasp after affirming that he is God, but he had such an incredible being of perfection without corruption in love that this love could spring forth out of that total perfection of love in ultimate, in what is ultimate in the perfection of love, to condescend and take upon him the clothing of a human body without sin and live a life where he was tempted in all points as we are, as the scripture says, and yet without sin. So through his obedience, through having an abiding intimate union with the Father, he never broke his oneness with the Father, for he is God. The secret of that abiding union with the Father is the fear of God that was in Yeshua, Jesus Christ, as God. For it is the very secret of abiding in God himself. This is made clear in Isaiah, what is it? I forgot which passage now. But it says concerning the Lord, it says in Isaiah, the fear of the Lord is his treasure when it's speaking of the Messiah. And it's very clear that that's the context. Yes, the Lord cried with strong cries and was heard and that he feared. Fear. He reverenced who the Father was. He loved the Father. He saw how great and awesome he was and is. He was in total oneness of reciprocation with the Father, eating the being of the Father. Yes, he describes his relationship with the Father as a reciprocation that is like eating. And in that description of eating or absorbing in the being of the Father into his being, and the Father responding back to his expressions of love, the Father is reciprocating the Son as well in a deep abiding relationship that can be likened unto eating. And that is why Christ says, if any man eat my flesh and eat my blood, then he will have eternal life. He is talking about in that outpoured atonement, eating the very being of who he is and his love that's outpoured in his blood which is the life that held him in his body, outpoured in his broken body. The communion is not something that I would ever treat lightly. In fact, I don't like it when we just do it in a few minutes. I think we should dwell for some time when we do communion, first on the blood and, and 
just be meditating and be still before God and let it just melt our hearts as to his outpoured love and his blood for us. And then I believe we should do this, first of all, pardon me, with the broken body and then the blood. His outpoured love and his broken body for us and his outpoured love and his blood shed for us. It shouldn't be treated lightly. It should be something where we experience that reciprocation in our being. For Christ said that even, even as I eat of the Father, so you should eat of me. This is clearly taught by Christ in John. I forget if it's John chapter 8, but it's somewhere thereabouts. And so in the eating of this lamb, there is the representation by eating it all that it that there must be a wholeheartedness. And brothers and sisters, let us repent that we so glibly go through the communion and we don't do it with a wholeheartedness that allows us to wait on God and to absorb fully who God is in his love for us. Outpoured in his body, broken in his bloodshed. I call the body of Christ to come back to having communion where there's quality time taken in reverence and awe till we know the melting of his presence in our hearts and reciprocating who he is. So Christ had a oneness with the Father and the fear of God that allowed him and never he never broke that oneness and as a result never sinned, though he was tempted in all points as we are. And so as it were, he took the first man, Adam, who disobeyed God within which we as the human race came out of, and who we are in. And he took that first Adam, and as it were, through his obedience out of union with the Father, came and, as it were, took that first Adam and nailed him to the cross, that we might be translated into Jesus Christ, the second Adam that conquered the first Adam, allowing us to be reconciled to God, our eating is the reciprocation with the humility and thankfulness of the perfect ultimate being of God's love and his holiness and mercy to us in atoning sacrifice outpoured in his broken body and blood. And we need to come back to the fear of God where we enter in to communion with God out of this focus, which is clearly emphasized as to what brings us into acceptance before God in Ephesians chapter 1, where it says, He has made us accepted in the Beloved, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He has made us accepted in the Beloved. It is when we have the genuine praise towards the glory that comes from His grace, the grace coming from His love that is in mercy and from his love that is in holiness or integrity of love requiring judgment. This is what God is calling us as his people to enter into. A to return to the genuine fear of God and to the genuine reciprocation of the praise of the glory of his grace, which is in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ, so clearly then described in the verses that follow in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, I do have a few other passages I am only going to 
mention them. On January the 14th, I received Psalms 9. We choose to praise the name of the Lord with our whole heart. This is because we choose to perceive the name of the Lord, which is the absolute perfection of his being of love to us in holiness and mercy. It is thereby that we recognize that the Lord holds ultimate and unlimited everlasting life, power, and authority that is not only ultimately trustworthy and worthy of our wholehearted trust and love expressed in wholehearted praise. That's verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 9. That's what you see there. 4 to 6, we therefore declare with confidence that God has and will maintain our right and our cause because as such from his government he always judges perfectly right. In fact, we should declare in the past tense as if it has already happened that the wicked will be destroyed and their name forever and ever. That's what it is in verses 4 to 6 of Psalms 9. Verses 7 to 9. We can be confident and confess that the Lord will endure forever and that he has prepared his throne to judge the world in righteousness and that he will be a refuge for the oppressed in times of trouble. Let us declare these things in confidence. Verse 10, it is those that seek the Lord that know the very being of who God is, in his love of holiness and mercy, and as such then can put their full trust in him. You want to birth genuine faith? You do it that way, by seeking God out of the fear of God, that allows the reciprocation of his very being of love and his holiness and mercy in a deep, intimate fellowship that overcomes all of our fears and our tendencies to be alive onto identity and our friends and all the other things. And what did I finally get? Well, I got on January the 16th the resurrection of Christ in Mark 16, and I made it a big, I made it a big uh, kind of study to see how it all fit together and all the different passages. I haven't even finished that, but what is brought out here is that when we have this relationship with God, there's always going to be breakthrough as we persevere, because we have the faith to persevere. We will see resurrection. Christ prayed for Peter that though Satan sifted him as wheat, that his faith would not fail. If we don't want our faith to fail, let us grow and build up our faith by praying in the Holy Ghost. For it says, ye beloved, build up yourselves in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. Prayer, reciprocation, fellowship with God. And what I got thus far on this in the amount that I shared, it's just wonderful to see the, the resurrection side that comes forth. It is so great. And we're living... And I believe the year of Jubilee, many have disputed whether it was last year or this year. It looks like it's this year because this is when I see the things coming forth that represent Jubilee. We see uh, Trump coming into power, liberty, uh, our religious liberty so threatened in the United States and around the world. A standard being raised, an opportunity to preach the gospel for the end time harvest before judgment comes for another eight years as Trump will be president, according to the prophecies of uh, Kim Clement and I don't know about the other prophets. And so I am believing to see this happen. 
Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb first very early, while it is yet dark with Mary, the mother of James, shortly behind her. The other women come later by a period of a possibly around 15 minutes. Before the other women come, both Marys see the angel of the Lord in the tomb. When the other women come a little later, they all see the stone rolled away and then see two angels standing by them in shining garments that tell them he has risen and fulfilled the scriptures, that he should be crucified and rise again. Oh, wow. I, I, weep, I re weep with joy. This is such good news. After this, they all immediately go with Mary Magdalene to tell the disciples and meet the Lord on the way and now worship him and hold him by the feet. While they are going, some of the watch of soldiers comes that was guarding the stone comes into the city because, as you know, before they came to the tomb, the angel appeared in great bright light and his face was like lightning and he rolled away the stone while the soldiers were guarding it and they fell as dead men because of the power of God that came with that angel that shook the earth with an earthquake. But here they are, now they're running on their way back. And while that's happening, the soldiers are going to the Sanhedrin and reporting what happened. And they're given big money to lie and say that the disciples stole away the body of Jesus. They come to the apostles and tell them then what has happened to Mary and the women. John runs faster and gets there first, followed by Peter, who runs slower, and the other apostles may or not may or may or may not have come a little later. Mary also returns following Peter and John who are running and when Peter and John have investigated and left she is left by herself weeping and then turns and sees the Lord which tells her not to touch him yet until he ascends to the Father. The reason the Lord told her not to touch him probably is because she had a close relationship with him that could have caused a natural bond of the fallen nature in her that would have been defiling to the Lord before he ascended to the Father. And of course, after that, they go for the walk to Emmaus. And then later on, the Lord appears to all the disciples in their midst. And this goes on with a number of other times until the 500 of them see him at once as he ascends to heaven. And this was all before witnesses that lived and died over what they saw. Now we had in this passage about the men that could not, were concerned that they could not partake because they were defiled. And the Lord said, you can partake even if you were defiled because the atoning blood of Jesus Christ covers our sins when we repent before we take communion. How dare we go through the communion glibly, almost with disrespect treating it as a routine. May it melt our hearts. May we have such a relationship with God. Thank you for listening to this message and may God bless you all and I pray that you'd pray for me that God would open doors into ministry, that he would bring the provision that is needed to be totally out of debt and to bring forth this book which is a template for planning churches that will not limit God in the last days, that will allow the bride of Christ to come forth so that the fullness of the headship of Christ inhabits fully local assemblies. 
God bless you all. I thank you for what God will do in Resurrection Answers in this year of Jubilee to all you who are experiencing captivity. Thank you.